Hey man, how are you? Oh, good evening. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for coming on, taking the time. It's very much my pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, as a historian, I love your background. Oh, huh. yeah. I'm not a historian, but I'm a but to rip off Dan Carlin, I'm a, a his, historical enthusiast or a, a fan of history. Unlike That's, him, who who's almost essentially a hit. I mean, I, I know, right? Like I love his stuff, but he's technically not a history guy. He's he's like a journalist. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Okay. If we're going to get really, really technical. But about... he's a great historian, like one of the yeah. best I've ever listened to, yeah. honestly. Wow. I mean, if somebody spreads that much history, then really what are they? I mean, I don't know. It's semantics. It's playing clever with the semantics to get off the hook for anything he could get accused of. What is one of your favorite um, series that he's done? Oh, good Lord. Um, I really like his Eastern Front one that was okay. mind opening to me i had no idea i love the genghis khan one that the world too. war one uh, those, the, those are my two favorites the episode about the reformation and the madness at Munster, at munster was amazing i haven't listened to that one yet that's very good it's uh i mean it's kind of you can see echoes of jim jones you can see echoes of you know waco um and really, at least in North America, so few people understand that there was this thing called the Reformation, which kind of created a bit of a problem for the entire world for 100 years. Oh, Maybe yeah. still, but I mean, it's calmed down a little bit. Yeah, I was but, just, um, I was, for my Civ one class, I, I get to that far. That's my stopping point, the Renaissance and the Reformation, Protestant Reformation. Okay. So I was just, man, all day today, I was in there hammering out assignments for these uh, college kids to be doing. So are you, you're teaching history? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I have been teaching full-time in addition to, like, my wife and I own a martial arts academy. I've been okay. teaching full-time for uh, about to start my third year of full-time, and I, I taught part-time a little bit before that. Okay. So you're going to get used to the Zoom, or is it, are you, you're in Arkansas? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and where, you're, you're in Canada, correct? I am, yeah. British okay. Columbia. I All did right. spend a, a couple of months in Arkansas back in 99, so... Yeah. Okay. So ironically, my coach is the gym that you went to my head coach, who I got my bite belt from Danny Dring. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, ironically, that's you've you've been to Arkansas and you yeah. trained with my, my head coach, which I've spent many, many, many hours yeah. on those same mats. He seemed like a really, really good guy. That's I mean, based off of three or four hours of interaction. Yeah, so. he's he's been on the podcast two or three times, and he actually married my wife and I. He became oh. an or, became an ordained minister, um, and performed the ceremony for us. So, like a uh, legit minister, like a universal life church uh, minister, like one of those. You yeah. know, we we I, just... I am I too am a minister under the universal life church. Uh, <laughs> um, it was kind of a bullshitting session at the fire hall that got out of control. I was like, "Fuck y'all, I'm gonna." I'm going to become a minister. So it is, it is often pointed out to me that my behavior isn't necessarily congruent with, with the position of minister, but yeah. who who's perfect? Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. 
precisely. Yeah, it, you know, it just meant more to us. Like, uh, we didn't really have a, a minister in mind, anybody we wanted to do, and it just made more sense. It would have been more to have somebody really close to us perform the mm -hmm. ceremony. So I think that's why a lot of these people I've talked to over the years end up getting ordained. Mm -hmm. It's just so they can do just be a part of somebody's moment like that. It's Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, so you're you're also, I want to talk to you about this, just uh, – I've been referring to it as the complimentary COVID conversation, okay. right? <laughs> That's like the first 10 minutes of anybody I talked to, but you said you're doing some homeschooling right now. Mm -hmm. um, so you're teaching a little bit. Uh, what, what is, um, what is education like for you guys right now? Like, how is it? Teaching well, it's not my first kick at the homeschooling can really. Uh, my wife of, you know, with whom I had my children, and I were separated, but we still, and now divorced, but we still homeschooled our kids separately, kind of working together for the first, I'll say, six to eight years of their education. So that, that was, you know, we're not newbies at the whole homeschooling thing. What we are newbies at is trying to, you know, parallel what the school system is putting out. And supposing, I don't know, supposing you and I, Brian, we went to... Little Rock, a year ago, we went to the school board of Little Rock and we convinced them, hey, we've got this great plan. Here's 12 irrefutable reasons why we should move our, uh, the entire education system online and just do it all through Zoom. Uh, presumably, if they had been convinced, they would have said, that's fine. We would like 15 years to implement and test this. Uh, so that obviously was not the case. I don't know what it was like in Arkansas, but in uh, British Columbia, where I live, it, the whole thing got cobbled together in about, I'll say, two weeks. Same here. Uh, yeah. for, you know, for college, that was, I, I mean, I was set up, man. I was like, oh, you guys want me to go to my studio at home yeah. and teach online? Yeah, this would be great. Yeah. I'm set up for this. But, you know, one thing I wasn't set up for that I was just thinking about when you told me this, like, I'm not set up to teach all the subjects right? I'm just head up to teach history. I could probably pull together an English class, mm -hmm. um, you know, on a short notice, but man, that's one thing. Like I was actually homeschooled until the eighth grade. And, um, I think to a certain point I could handle doing multiple subjects. Like how, what, what are the ages of your children that you're teaching? Uh, we got 16, we got, uh, 14, 13 and we've got eight. So it's, it's right through. But it's, it's just really the only hard, well, I got two things to complain about. One is to do a good job takes a lot of time. And, you know, I am still working full-time as a firefighter and I'm working as much as I can on grapple arts. And I'm now homeschooling three kids and I've got, you know, those three kids 24 seven and have had them 24 seven since March. It's, it's a very, very, very full plate. So the, the, having the mental bandwidth, I mean, I'm very lucky. I, I live in British Columbia where COVID has been, the curve has pretty much been crushed. I, I think we thought we would just get nuked at first because there's so much connection to Wuhan here. Like there's so many Asians, so many mainland Chinese who come here for school and for living. It seemed, and we live right next door to Washington state which was, of course, the first yeah. center of the outbreak in the United States. So it seemed reasonable that we were just going to get destroyed. As it turns out, for a 
couple of reasons, probably including the prevalence of mask wearing, which just made it a more normative thing, right? You, it's rare to see a white guy in a mask, but because there's so many Asians around wearing masks anyway, it's not actually that big a deal. And I, I, I think it's in retrospect when the analysis gets done, that'll really contribute to the fact that, I mean, BC, I don't think we've had a death. I think we had, no, sorry, I think we had one death a couple of days ago and it's like the first death in, I want to say a week or 10 days. I should be more up on the stats for, for around us here. Um, but uh, yeah, so the really being very lucky to be in a place like that, the biggest hardship for me personally has been just the absolute destruction of any uh, discretionary time. I mean, yeah, it's a hardship, but compared to what some people are going through, it's a very, very small hardship. Yeah, yeah. So you, you know, you mentioned mask wearing, and uh, I saw I saw a post you made, uh, call, yeah. you know, with commenting because I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan when I saw your uh, post. But uh, so Fayetteville, uh, it's probably I'm an hour from Little Rock, and Fayetteville's about an hour forty, forty-five from me. And they just passed a city ordinance today uh, mandating that masks be worn in all public spaces in the city of Fayetteville. I mean, here, here's the thing. Like, it's, I, it's really unfortunate that the CDC and the World Health Organization were giving conflicting messages on this early on. It, it's really done a tremendous amount of harm to the public conversation around this. And I understand why they did it. I work for the fire department. I've been a firefighter for 21 years. My captain, I'm very, very heavily involved with our hazmat program. When COVID broke here, we were panicking because there were just not enough N95 masks to go to calls with. And we were like, are we gonna be going to calls, wearing our, our medical calls, wearing our full SCBA, right? The full air cylinder on the back. And that seemed like a reasonable thing. And there were departments locally that were doing that. They would basically treat it like a full hazmat call because they didn't have the right protective equipment, PPE. And getting the right of PPE is still a major problem. I mean, uh, Canada has majorly pissed off China uh, recently in some political things. And so maybe that's why we're not getting PPE or maybe there's just not any PPE to be had. I don't know. Um, so I can see why the messaging early was, yeah, yeah, don't go with masks. It might've been much more intellectually honest and done less harm to the public conversation in the long run. had they said, look, we think masks work, uh, but we really need them for the first responders. So how about the normal public just use surgical masks and we'll save the N95s for doctors. Would that have stopped people hoarding them? I don't think so. I'm, I couldn't even get any for a long time. Like yeah. the first couple of weeks, of the outbreak i could i was wearing like a bandana tied uh you know yeah. so you didn't drop dead of carbon dioxide poisoning and your immune system didn't collapse not yet okay <laughs> it's yeah. we're, we're a few months in i'm 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 still you know walking on eggshells but yeah, yeah it's uh but now it you know and like for example there's a, a guy that uh he's a he's a judo and a keto guy but he's also an orthopedic surgeon and um he's got a lot of really awesome he, he knows three styles of wing chun he, he comes in and trains with me once a week and he was like hey i'm just gonna come in i'm gonna wear a mask you're gonna wear a mask we're still gonna work out i'm like you're 72 and a doctor 
Okay. Uh, and, and, and he would tell me, and it's funny, as soon as we get done, like, working with each other, he would, like, start practicing social distancing. He would, like, be six feet away from me, and I would, like, kind of step kind of close to him, and he would step six feet back, right. even though we still have our mask on. But he was like, you see what I'm doing here? But uh, Limiting the risk. I mean, I explain this to my kids. When they're like, well, what? You, you know, I went and visited this friend. Why can't I visit this friend? I went into this store for five seconds. Why can't I go to all these other stores? It's a risk per unit time, right? It's like, I don't know, you're, you're driving a car that's going 50 kilometers an hour. Every extra minute that you're on the road, you've gone further. Or you've got a, you know, your risk crashing your car is, I'm sorry, I should go in miles. Your risk of having a major car accident are one for every, I don't know, 100,000 miles you drive. Each additional mile you drive is a greater chance. So we're all playing the odds here, right? Masks aren't 100% perfect, not at all. But they're a whole lot better than nothing. And there's a compounding effect. If you're wearing a mask that's 50% efficient, and I'm wearing a mask that's 50% efficient, assuming it's the same for the in and the out, which isn't quite true, then the net effect is 75%. And now if we, if I've got to go to the dentist and we're taking precautions that limit me 50% from exposure, now it's 50% of seven, I mean, it's actually a bad example. So I'm wearing a mask during the dentist visit, but you get my point, right? It's, it's, I went to the dentist here and I had to wear a mask, uh, like all the really? way, there was a whole bunch of, yeah, they had canceled my point. I had one in March, right? So they canceled, but man, they had a lot, like probably no exaggeration, probably like 20 things I had to do to get yeah. a cleaning that day. But I wear a mask all the way until like they were putting the stuff in my mouth. Fair enough. So they're limiting their time in the danger zone, right? They're limiting it, you know, your total dose is time times concentration, right? So uh, you can limit your time or you can limit the, uh, the amount, the rate at which you're being exposed to. Um, both are good. But it's, it's a, man, it's, it's insane that wearing a mask has become a political issue. Like, I understand why some other things became a political issue. Like, okay, uh, I can understand why people think that hydroxychloroquine became a political issue. Well, Trump endorsed it. Therefore, people who don't like it have to hate Trump. I don't think that's correct, but I see why people think that. And maybe it is correct for some people. I don't think it was true for me. Um, but it's insane that masks have become a political issue now. I mean, you take a look at football games during the 1918 Spanish flu ep epidemic. Everyone's wearing a freaking mask in the well, state. and there were also i had a historian come on and talk about this that brought this up mitch Lerner, if you want to uh, check it out or, or he's got some great articles he's been mm -hmm. writing for the washington post but he said that there were anti-mask leagues oh really in Back the united then? states yes oh. about about the time and he was he was he is so great about like hey here's what's going on right now and here's what happened in 1918 the same you know and he just really made that point but he's like yes we got to a point where you know they had flattened numbers so like my community at one point we had only seven active cases now we have like 93 or something right mm -hmm. and we've had more recovered cases than that but it's sure. like we had it almost all the way gone yeah. right and i'm not gonna say we wouldn't have had some come back in but we only had seven active cases in the community that shoots up hundreds well, of cases. I, I, i'm not a fan of communist china at all at all same. But if you had to choose one or two political systems to effectively deal with a pandemic, like a legit pandemic, whether it's Ebola, SARS, MERS, SARS-CoV-2, COVID, whatever the hell, 
And one is an authoritative, authoritarian regime that can absolutely shut down any part of the country, weld people in their apartment buildings and say, you will install this app on your phone and we will contact trace you and you have no choice. And that's political system one. And political system two is this, you know, radical democracy thing. And where, you know, states can go against other states, can go against governors, can go against mayors of the city and the president saying this and the doctor saying that. And like, which of those two systems would you bet on to do well in a pandemic? I'm going to go with, I don't want to, I don't want it to be true. But as my 16 year old kid said, facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, the, the first system is actually more resilient, at least in the short and medium term. Than, uh, I would agree. System. Yes. Well, you know, here's a question that I just wanted to hit you, like while we're on the topic. I'm sorry, we're, we're way off the topic of jujitsu here. Well, but, well, here's where we can. Enemies, I've been making enemies at such a frantic pace online that why not? So we'll go full circle. Like I know. So why I wanted to bring this up also is I figured you would have an opinion about this being who you are. What does the world look like for us? post COVID-19 or moving forward from today and like what's jiu-jitsu look like what's jiu-jitsu like post COVID-19 well post COVID-19 or if over the next year yeah, yeah. you know like moving forward from right now yeah. man I don't know I, I like I tell you jiu-jitsu looks pretty good in New Zealand right now right they they crushed that curve it turns out that you can actually crush the curve and get rid of it completely so long as you're on top of it and have like a unified response and a, a fairly intense initial response. And then, you know, sort of like, would you like me to amputate your arm quickly or slowly, right? Like you want me to take an ax and chop it off and it's really gonna hurt, but it's gonna be over quickly. Or would you like me to take a bread knife and slowly saw your arm off? I'm going with the ax every time. So uh, in places where the curve has been crushed, or at least heavily suppressed. Um, yeah, they end up with a New Zealand situation. I'm assuming that all gyms are open in New Zealand. I don't know that for a fact. I should probably find out. Um, but I'm seeing a lot locally where there isn't a lot of community transmission. I, I guess we got to define terms, right? Community transmission is when people are still getting it out there, right? We Five people got sick at a supermarket and we, they got it out there in the community as opposed to getting it in a hospital or, mm -hmm. you know, in like, man, I was intubating a sick patient and I got sprayed in the face. So if community transmission is very low, then I think it's reasonable to start training with a very small group of people. And I think the, really the safest number of people is one, right? And I don't mean solo mm -hmm. drills. I mean, you and I form a monogamous jujitsu training relationship. Dude, uh, you're going to be careful out in general. I'm going to be careful out in general but you and I will only train together. Yes. And uh, if I start feeling sick, I'll let you know. If you start feeling sick, you let me know. If anyone in your circle has been feeling sick, you let me know. If anyone in my circle is feeling sick, I'll let you know. And of course, it's not as good as the, you know, like shark tanking with 12 people or just, hey, I'm gonna roll with this guy because he's got a great spider guard. I'm gonna roll with that guy because uh, he's really good at smash pass and roll with this chick because she's really good at heel hooks. That's way more fun, but I think this idea of a monogamous training partner relationship is probably what we're gonna see a lot of. And I've heard of people creating training pods, sort of trying to limit, you know, if somebody comes in sick and pre-symptomatic, 
and meaning they're going to get sick in a week, but they're infectious right now, then they're only going to infect three people max, as opposed to 20 people max. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, I think, you know, but really, I'm with what Bill Gates said in the first 10 minutes of this pandemic. I don't think things will get fully back to normal until there's a vaccine or until there's a really easy way to test people. And this, I'm adding this to Bill Gates. I think Bill Gates missed two things. Until there's a really easy way to treat people or until there's a really easy way to test people, right? I mean, if it was a $5, you know, Senegal was developing a $1 COVID test. I don't know how effective it was. I don't think they're there yet. But if there was a $1 test where you, you know, Here's your little swab, you lick it, you put in the vial, and if it turns, you get two lines like a pregnancy test, you're sick, there's one line, you're good to go. I would pre-buy a case of those things and like... Uh, For sure. Yeah, like, oh, guess what, guys? Your, uh, your monthly dues are going to go up by five bucks or ten bucks or whatever, but I'm also going to test every one of you before class, and that way you can be sure that everyone that you're training with is safe. Well, Joe, Joe Rogan's testing all of his podcast guests. I heard him talking mm -hmm. about, and you know, I saw him in the UFC. They like uh, a good friend of mine was just Bryce Mitchell from Arkansas. Like uh, one of his coaches, a really good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. He filmed him getting his swab. Man, they stuck it way up his nose. Yeah, I think that's a big disincentive. Like I, I, I know a bunch of people have been tested, but they were all sick. I don't know anybody who's gone. No, I should probably just go get a test for fun. I haven't had a test this week. Let me uh, take an hour out of my day and go get this nasal swab stuck all the way to my back of my brainstem. Um, if there was an easier test, I think that'd be a game changer. If there was a really high standard of care. I mean, today there was that Oxford study, I believe, showing the dexamethasone, which is like a cheap I did read that. altitude drug. I, I got to laugh. There was a terrible movie. I think it was called... Um, Altitude, something altitude. It's a terrible mountaineering movie where for some reason they're climbing Mount Everest with vials of nitroglycerin for some reason. Vertical limit. Vertical limit. Horrific yeah. movie. Yeah. But Chris O'Donnell. Time, Get the decks. Right? They're injecting each other with decks. <laughs> uh, and apparently decks can do anything. You can like leap from, you know, 400 feet across chasms and then stick the landing with a couple of ice. You remember that scene? Yes. Uh, that was as soon as you said that, that's the scene I had in my mind. Wow. That was my mental picture. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I saw that. I remember that. That was in summer of 93 that came out because I was on another canoe trip. I go on these big long canoe trips occasionally and I pulled into the town of Fort McMurray. It was kind of my last stop before just getting right into the sticks. And so I went to a restaurant and I went and watched a movie that night and I saw Vertical Limit. I was like, what was it? The Stallone movie. I'd have been Cliff, the Stallone Cliff, movie. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. It came out right around the same time. It was one of those terrible movies. I was like, man, there's no point in coming out of civilization. I don't care. You know, <laughs> these movies are terrible. It's not good enough to, uh, to, to leave my boat. Let me get back to my boat. Well, so tell me, that was one thing... Um... I kind of read something about you recently. Tell me about these canoe trips. You went on one recently. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, I grew up in Ontario, which is kind of like, I don't know, the Minnesota of the United States, right? It's the Minnesota of Canada. So canoeing's big. It's Canadian Shield, right? There's tons of lakes, tons of rivers. Um, I mean, I've, I've driven through Duluth and, and the canoe and the fur trade are pretty embedded into, into that part of Minnesota anyway. Um, so I grew up paddling, but then, uh, 
I started doing some solo trips. It was, uh, I was actually uh, on a trip with one of my brothers and he had to bail. Um, he had some pretty good addiction issues. So like uh, one day into the trip, he's like, that's it. I'm bailing. Basically he didn't bring enough drugs. And uh, he bailed and I was like, man, I'm not going to let this ruin. I've been looking forward to this for four months. So I went and did a, I continued. I continued for another two days and one night. And it was really a, an amazing experience to be out there. So you asked me about the big long trip. I'm talking about the short little trip. Yeah. Well, I mean, just in general, um, we can, we can talk about the recent yeah. one, but like, what's it like being, uh, just like, so I've gone several canoe trips. I've even gone in the wilderness on the Buffalo river here in Arkansas, okay. uh, which is like a 30 mile stretch. And we, we didn't even see anybody the whole time right. for three days. Um, but what is, uh, what's that like just being by yourself? Well, it was a concern initially because I'd done some shorter trips, right? I'd done like three-day trips and, you know, some two-day hikes and stuff. So I was fine there, right? You, you start small. Um, and then I was started wondering about a bigger trip. And I was, that, that was a trip from uh, northern Ontario up to Hudson Bay and then back. It's basically upriver back to Hudson, back to... And uh, I had concerns. I mean, there's bears and there's polar bears and there's rapids and stuff like that. But really the biggest fear I had, if I'm honest about it, was like big tough guy makes it out into the wilderness and is all lonely because there's nobody there to talk to. Uh, right? like it's, that really was my concern, my biggest concern. And I found it wasn't the case at all. For me, that, was a, that trip was a rite of passage because I did it at the end of my undergrad. And uh, um, I was like, I wanted to mark the transition from one phase of my life to the other, right? In the same way, I don't know, I suppose the native peoples had vision quests and sailors crossing the equator would go for the first time, would go through a, a hazing of sorts. And many, many cultures used to have these sorts of rites of passage, but now, hey, you've graduated, here's your diploma, now piss off. Um, so I wanted to have something, I wanted to do something that was difficult and had a chance of failure, quite honestly. I mean, that if it's something is guaranteed to be a success and it's not difficult. Um, and so that was a four week trip. And wow. uh, yeah, I wasn't completely alone. There were other groups of people on the river. I went through one town, Moosonee, uh, ran into the occasional native fishermen, that kind of thing. But I never felt lonely. Uh, there were times I wanted to say, hey, look at that. Isn't that amazing to somebody, right? I wanted to share what I was going through. But in terms of like lying there in a fetal position, rocking back and forth, not once. So that was a good discovery. And so then, I mean, it's, it's hard to set up your life to be able to do these sorts of things on the regular, especially once you move on to, you know, having kids and that, and that sort of thing. It, it took a lot of logistics to set up, um, just taken off for 50 days uh, last summer. And really, by the time, it's more like 50. Yeah, it was about 50 days, including like traveling and coming back and, and all that. And uh, it was wonderful to be out there again. It's uh, <laughs> a little bit disconcerting to be out there in a body that's 20 years or 25 years older than it was the last time I did it. I, uh, I really pushed myself very hard. I think I'd been 12, going 12 days before I took my first half day rest. And uh, like my hormonal systems just crashed. And by the, I mean, it took me months to recover because I was pushing myself really 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 hard 
and just like not sleeping enough, not eating enough, being wet and cold. What kind of what what kind of I read you ran into some crazy stuff out there too. Like what kind of hardships were you running into that were um, crashing you, other than you feeling older than you once were? Well, one pretty dramatic part was uh, it's the boreal forest, right? The boreal forest in northern Canada burns. It burns on average, I want to say, every fifty to seventy years, right? It's it's almost designed to burn, or at least it's the plants that are adapted to to recover from fire because it can get very dry. It's all coniferous forest. Uh, there's, you know, like fires go through there regular. So I was heading upriver on the Cochrane River and I could see fires burning in the distance, you know, far, far, far to the left and far, far, far to the right. It's like one of those, I don't know, mushroom cloud plumes. It, it looks like somebody's dropped a, dropped a nuke somewhere in the middle of the forest. Uh, usually it, they pick up in mid morning as the weather begins to warm by mid afternoon, they're gigantic. So I was working my way up the Cochrane and I noticed that the smoke was getting a lot, a lot thicker. Our visibility was going down. The sun set with just a bright, bright red. I mean, it looked like horrific Los Angeles smog. And so basically the river's heading north, east, northwest. And the further I go, the worse it gets. So I do uh, dial a friend on my Garmin. Right? The Garmin's have got basic satellite text. And I get the locations of the various fires that are around me. And as it turns out, there's one that's basically directly ahead of me. And the wind is blowing directly towards me, meaning that fire is coming my way. And uh, so it turned into a race to get to the point where I would then basically turn a hard right and get out of the line of fire. And you know, by the end of it, it was, it was getting pretty dodgy. I mean, I had a plan. If I got caught in the wildfire, I'd retreat to the middle of the river and go down river till I got to a lake. And then if I had to flip the boat in the shallows and breathe the water under the, uh, under the, under the boat till the, the big wave of fire passed. Let's just call that the, the plan D, right? Maybe the plan E. Uh, so yeah, that, 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 was a, that was a bit of a tense time. Um, yeah. I did manage to get to the point where the river turned before the fire got there. I, I've been meaning to, and I haven't, to take a look at the fire maps for last summer and see you know, roughly when, how much I beat that fire to that one point by and then just bugs and bears and you know uh, uh just long long we hours. run into black bears around here but you really don't uh, i don't hear stories of people getting attacked by them there's bear seasons like but bears are much much larger in your uh part of the country i feel like like i mean we're yeah. talking grizzly bears polar bears what what do you what do you see all, all three i saw um tundra grizzly they're pretty aggressive. They're, they're larger. I definitely ran into some black bear. I had a very close encounter with a bear that I don't know what it was, but I was going towards a bunch of cabins and I'd left my 12 gauge it's in the a boat. Big foot, probably. <laughs> uh, for the record, just, you know, should I ruin your reader, your, your listenership by saying I've never seen any sign of Bigfoot ever. It's, uh, and for that matter, Les Stroud, who I've had on my podcast, uh, also doesn't really believe in Bigfoot either. Um, despite his show of like looking for Bigfoot. Uh, yeah, uh, bear, black bear behavior varies a lot, right? It depends if they're, if they're eating small rodents and stuff or, you know, eating fish or eating berries. That's one thing. Further north, further, the further north they go, the more predatory they become, right? So they go from hunting small things to maybe hunting caribou, maybe hunting deer, maybe hunting baby moose calves. 
right? So they're used to eating larger mammals and guess what? You and I are larger mammals. And it's, uh, um, you know, the idea of being caught in a, in a tent with one of those things coming through the tent, that's pretty, pretty bad situation. I mean, then the natives up there, as you start getting closer to Hudson Bay, they're totally willing to go in tents to go caribou hunting, right? If they're, if they're going to go and fly in or skidoo in for 50 miles to go hunt caribou, fine, no problem. They'll stay in canvas tents, but staying along the Hudson Bay coast where all the polar bears live, very, very, very few of them will do that in a tent, like maybe a cabin, but in a tent, you're just stupid. And so uh, um, along the coast, it starts getting really quite worrisome. So you really got to try and, again, just like with COVID, you're trying to minimize the amount of time that you're in the danger zone, right? Like if minimize your risky behaviors, that's why I didn't fish on that trip. I didn't want to smell like fish, right? Not smelling like food is your number one defense. Also, I tried to pass through the danger areas as fast as possible, right? So if you're, if you have to spend time on the coast, let's be here for an afternoon. Let's not be here for, you know, a leisurely week of hanging out and watching the Lucas. Yeah. Wow. What a, you know, we had a black bear in our camp one night. We were camped on like a grand. This is on the Arkansas river. Uh, this is on the Buffalo. Right? Okay. So at Buffalo national river is a, a beautiful river. It runs, uh, it takes, Oh man, something like three weeks to float the entire thing. Right. Uh, but the, where's a, like a 40 mile section. My only references for Arkansas are Camden and, uh, and little rock itself. The two places I've been. So it runs uh, from, man, it runs almost it, through a significant portion of the state. Okay. I, can't, I can't give you any markers based to there, but um, the wilderness portions like the last 40 miles and it runs into the White River. Uh, so, uh, but the, we had a black bear in our camp one night and we were intense, but it, it was, it, it was just pilfering around outside. We weren't too worried about it, but we were camped on a gravel bar and it, waded over through the shallow and do you drive it off with noise or what do you do uh yeah we drove it off with noise um but uh yeah that happened i mean that was uh that was kind of scary but Got i can't, the blood Im moving. can't imagine it being a larger uh a larger bear because the black bears around here are not i mean the biggest one i've ever seen is still wasn't large well there's also so many hunters in arkansas that basically any bear has learned to stay away from humans or that humans can be dangerous, right? I mean, there are apparently grizzlies in Northern Italy that are just so shy because they've been there for, uh, you know, they've been hunted for thousands of years that the ones that weren't shy have been wiped out, right? It's basically Darwinian selection. So you end up with very, very shy, shy grizzlies living in the, the mountains in Northern Italy. Uh, yeah, the, you know, the accounts on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. Uh, I always wonder how much those accounts are like written. I mean, I've read tons of the, the early explorer accounts and I always wonder how much poetic license is put in there to, you know, sell books at home. Yeah. You ever seen, have you seen uh, the Ken Burns documentary on Lewis and Clark? No, I haven't. It's pretty good. He's, okay. he's, uh, if you've never seen any of his documentary films for history. Yeah. I've seen the uh, civil war stuff. Yes. Civil war is great. <laughs> Vietnam, Vietnam war. Yeah. Yeah, nice. but I haven't seen the Lewis and Clark one. It's good. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. That's one that uh, I, I like to show that's good as well. But man, I really enjoy his work. So, well, okay. So let me ask you this. So um, you had uh, kind of overcome uh, an illness at mm -hmm. some, some point recently. 
was how long ago was this and um what was that like how, how was your recovery uh so the illness that you're referring to i think is polycystic kidney disease right it's a it's a genetic thing i inherited it from my mom she lived to 72 and then died of something else uh me on the other hand for whatever reason maybe it was doing all that sparring and getting hit in the body okay so basically in polycystic kidney disease your kidney roughly the size of your fist decides it doesn't want to be a fist anymore and decides it wants to be uh, like a nerf football or bigger and so it begins swelling and as it swells it doesn't become better at filtering it becomes worse at filtering so i noticed it i found out about it first after an mma sparring session no after i sorry not after an mma after just a jiu-jitsu sparring session i had peed blood i'd pissed blood after hard sparring yeah few it's times to me. yeah it's to me. yeah it's not good but yeah I, it makes sense right i got smoked in the kidneys so i got smoked in the side of the belly kind of makes sense uh it turns out i was a little bit more susceptible to that than normal because of the larger kidneys and what the cysts which are like little balloons really would would burst and then they'd bleed but one day after jiu-jitsu class i got home and i hadn't taken any throws I hadn't been cut punched. I just trained hard and I'm peeing blood. I'm like, ah, something's not right. I shouldn't, there's no mechanism here by which I should be peeing blood. I haven't eaten any beets, right? There's, there's no reason for this to be read. For real. Uh, so I went and investigated and it turns out that I, yeah, I've got polycystic kidney disease, just like my mom. And so gradually over a space of about five years, my kidney function, I forget what it was when I started. I want to say like 50, 60%. You can lead a perfectly normal life on 50 to 60% of a kidney. It went down and down and down. By the time I got to 25% function, I was getting pretty tired. Like I just, I'm really not recovering. And I made it down to like 13, 14% function. I still work in the fire department. That was silly. I shouldn't have. Uh, but like by like 11 o'clock in the morning, I would just be destroyed. It'd be like I'd pulled an all nighter just, but, and the guys were pretty good i you know I, I i held on for another month or so you know i'd be like trying to nap at the fire hall and just praying that a call didn't come in and relying on adrenaline if uh if we did get a call uh then i was like okay screw this and very very fortunately my brother had decided to give me a kidney so uh you know i'm o negative so you know my wife's negative. so negative okay so i could give a kidney to anyone i just can't get a kidney from anyone uh, so yeah, I was, I was pretty down, but I was also had done everything I could to be in as good a shape as I could, right? I was still weightlifting, still doing cardio. Now cardio didn't look like the hard cardio it used to, but something's better than nothing. And so my recovery went pretty quickly. Uh, there were a couple of setbacks, you know, a couple of infections and stuff, but, uh, within, I want to say seven months. I was able, no, I was training, <laughs> I remember my first roll back, I think it was like, I want to say three months after the surgery, maybe two. And it was with a seven month pregnant Chinese woman who was like 110 pounds soaking wet. And <laughs> like, okay, we're going to roll. And I've, you know, you, I've got a very strong vested interest in you not hitting my belly. And you've got a very strong interest in me not hitting your belly. So we trained. That was my first training session back and it felt fantastic. Within uh, seven months, I was 
six months, seven months, I was training reasonably normally again. I think, unfortunately, my kickboxing days are behind me. I just, you know, I, I don't want to do something stupid there. Um, I think impact training is really the main thing I've had to give up. Uh, I pulled off a 30-mile hike in the mountains with, uh, what is it, 5,000 meters elevation change, so 15,000 ah. feet up and down in one day seven months after training that was seven months after the surgery that was kind of a goal and um yeah then a couple more surgeries i had to have the uh, the old kidneys removed that was actually much more painful than the first one uh i believe the doctors i think i said i tied the record for the fastest release after, after transplant and i set a new record for fastest release after like double kidney removal right i had the two old ones removed i've got a friend who lost a kidney to cancer i tell him that he's a pussy because anyone can lose one kidney it takes a real man to lose two kidneys and, yeah, uh, both of them wow so you were you were experiencing both your kidneys decreasing in function at the same time is that yeah, what yeah exactly wow. so i had three kidneys in me for a while um the, the one transplant and the two old ones wow. and uh yeah so no i think like i'm so grateful to live now as opposed to a hundred years ago, because a hundred years ago, I'm dead. I'm so grateful to uh, be living here in North America. And if I was a villager in Uzbekistan or in sub-Saharan Africa or like uh, Rarotonga, presumably I'd be dead, right? That the infrastructure wouldn't be there for, for transplantation. I'm also so glad that I live in Canada where we have, more or less socialized medicine. So I came out of that, like I, over the course of a year of treatment, I mean, a couple of surgeries, I, my expenses were maybe, I want to say like $300 because it's really wow. expensive to park at the hospital. And that was all through parking fees. Also, like, again, I, I'm really grateful I worked for the fire department because they basically said like, look, you know, go away and come back when you're healthy, right? As opposed to you know, I, I knew truck drivers who were like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to start driving truck again, or I'm going to go broke. Right. Like I, there are a lot of factors that really helped me focus on getting ready for the transplant and recovering from it. And like, if I'd go in, I do light duties, I'd develop training protocols for them in the morning, in the afternoon, I'd go do rehab, right. Rehab usually meant hiking in the mountains or, uh, you know, going to the gym. And that, that's a real luxury, right? So thank you, fire department. Thank you, uh, socialized medicine. Thank you for being born now. Thank you for being born in North America. Like, it's, man, there's just so many ways the story doesn't end well. Well, you have a lot of gratitude around that, I can tell. I mean, what... Uh, thank you, my brother, who gave me his kidney. <laughs> I should also thank him. <laughs> what, um, what was your... What was your mindset like? Uh, did you, you have any tips? Because I've had a hernia repair and I mean, those are some pretty dark times for me mentally. Uh, but I mean, that's, you know, that's a unique thing I've seen over the years. People get a surgery, maybe they don't come back to jiu-jitsu. Like it's, it, or um, they just like, you, you're just uncertain. Like, oh, am I ever going to be able to train again? Uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, the answer for most things is probably yes. I mean, maybe there, I'm sure there are some medical conditions where this can happen. You got really bad osteoporosis, got really bad hemophilia, 
you're very immune compromised. You know, I talk to your doctor, maybe jujitsu isn't for you, but I think, let me start at the end. The, the punchline here is that because I've had a number of surgeries, right? I've had orthopedic surgeries to have injuries repaired. Uh, I've had a hernia repair. I've had a arm, broken arm repair. I've had a broken foot repaired. Thank you, jujitsu. Thank you, jujitsu. Thank you, jujitsu. Uh, I have an intrinsic faith that just because there's a layoff doesn't mean it's forever, right? Anyone who gets the black belt has had to take a layoff for some reason, somehow. They've, they were purple belt and their wife said, we're moving to a different state or, or their job said, no, you really, really have to work on the Jones contract or it's finals in your final year of university and you're way behind. Layoffs happen, right? And you get back to jujitsu after. So uh, I, have, I have an intrinsic faith that I'll get back to jujitsu. So I'm ha actually handling this COVID layoff fairly well. I have an intrinsic faith we'll get back. It may take a lot longer than I want it to be. But eventually, you know, there'll be a test, there'll be a vaccine, there'll be some kind of effective treatment, we'll have a protocol, there'll, there'll be something like we will get back. How long? I don't know. But we will get back, all of us. Um, going into the actual surgery, I'm pretty uh, stoic, I think, like, really, I, you do everything you can to mitigate the risk. What is doing everything you can to mitigate the risk? Uh, you go in in as good a shape as you can, right? You try and take as good care of your health as you can. You shouldn't go, oh man, man, I've, I don't know, I've torn my ACL. I've torn my ACL and I've got to wait, I don't know, two months to surgery, say. All right. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. by all means. Fuck. I'm just going to eat four tubs of Hagen does a day. It doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you it does matter, right? Like if, if instead of, if they're going to harvest it from your other leg, well, it's time to start doing weight training. It's time to start doing weight training on both legs. Get those legs as massively strong as you possibly safely can. And your recovery time will be so much less, right? That is within your control. What's not within your control? Whether the doctor actually does a good job, right? Like, so, you know, control, it's like the, uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer, right? What is it? Uh, grant me the uh, strength to change the things I can, the serenity to accept the things I cannot, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, there's a whole lot of things you can change, right? And you can start out as healthy as you can. You can start out as in shape as you can. You can prehab if they have to operate on a body part. And then after, you can be conscientious about your rehab. And the whole time, you can be conscientious about your diet. Other things you can do is learn about what you're going through. Right? Like you can learn what is a Lisfranc injury, what is a menis knee meniscus surgery, how, you know, like how to rehab from ACL surgery, right? It, it, the, the number one reason people don't recover from injuries is because they're not doing the actual rehab or they do the rehab for a bit, they feel better and then they stop. And I'm, I'm, I've, <laughs> I've made that mistake more than enough times to vouch for it. That, that really is what happens. Right? I, I, uh, it's so easy to stop. Oh, I feel better. Therefore, I can stop. No, no, you feel better. So keep on doing it. You know, I, I recall uh, just us here talking about this. So w when I found out I had a hernia, one of the first things I did was Google. Oh, my God, I have a hernia and I trained jujitsu. What am I going to do? And you had like a blog. 
No. Like you were like oh. the, you, you came up, but that's one thing like I told a couple of my students, you were going to come on and they're like, man, that guy, he has a video for everything. Like I just recently watched your, your Eminari role video, which I think is really a great breakdown of a difficult uh, move for a lot of people. But you, you have a unique way of teaching. Like when did you start getting involved? I mean, like you really are like the first guy that comes up for big like when beginners search when i search being a three-year black belt like when did you get the grapple arts rolling like and what was your like impotence to do all of this uh well, i got it i started thinking about it in 2002 and then started doing it in 2003 so in 2002 uh i was a purple belt but there really wasn't much online education there and uh was there it a YouTube seemed, in 2002? No, that came later. I remember the very first YouTube video I put out really sitting there and debating for days because I released the video from one of my instructionals. I think it was the high percentage leg locks DVD back in the day. And I sat there going back and forth. Well, what if I release a technique from that DVD? Then people get it for free, then they won't buy the DVD. But on the other hand, that's kind of like a movie trailer. But on the other, like going back and forth now, like, Man, the, the more stuff you show, the better. Um, and it, in terms of pedagogy, in terms of how to teach properly, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, people learn in such different ways, right? Some people want to have it explained to them. Some people want to have it shown to them. Some people want analogies. I've just really paid attention to uh, some of the really great teachers that, uh, that I've come across. I mean, I, I, I trained with Oleg Tartarov, the old UFC uh, champion maybe five times i don't recall exactly maybe five seminars and i've talked to him a few times since i had him on again i had him on my podcast podcast recently and i mean his analogy for like okay how do you do joint lock i'm going to stop with the russian accent now he's like you take a stick you got to hold both ends of the stick and you got to put your knee in the middle and you got to break it so if you're doing an arm bar you got to hold the wrist you got to hold the, sh the shoulder and then you have to put pressure into the middle of the stick to break it. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? It's a, not a bad analogy for how to do most straight joint locks. So I'm like, okay, that's a great analogy. I'm going to steal it. I'll give credit, but I'm definitely going to steal that one. So just trying to pay attention to the, because there's, there's the techniques, but then there's also the teaching methods. And those are two different things. I mean, we've all met great competitors who would make terrible, who make terrible teachers. I think it's less in jujitsu, actually. I think, I mean, uh, probably it's a bigger problem in other sports. But still, we've all met really good jujitsu people who would, you know, clean the mat with everybody at their seminar, one after another, who can't teach their way out of a paper bag, or alternately, teach the wrong thing for, for the crowd. Here's what I'm determined to teach. I'm determined to teach upside down, inside out, reverse triangle choke from spider guard to a crowd that might not know what an Upa escape from the mount is or what the basic arm bar from the guard is. So uh, I think pedagogy or the ability to teach has come a long way in jujitsu. I mean, it used to be the, the VHS tapes used to be just a random collection of you know, 10 different techniques that had nothing to do with each other. And now people are much better about putting out you know, systems or 
a coherent strategy. You know, first I try this. Not all the time. Not every producer, but but it's 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 much better. So I, you know, you, I'd say you're well known, maybe most known for jujitsu, but you 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 mentioned kickboxing, you mentioned MMA. I know you've got. Uh, uh, at least m- maybe if it's just them selling your DVDs, but I feel like you've, you've had some connection with Eric Paulson and trained with those mm-hmm. guys over the years. What are some other things you're into besides uh, jujitsu and like what sort of crossover m- in methods do you use? If that makes yeah. sense. I mean, the, I'll answer the easy one first. I mean, uh, right now I'm, I really have to focus mostly on jujitsu. It's just there's so little time. So there's a ton of stuff I would love to do that I don't have time to do. Um, in the past, I've trained quite a bit in judo, a middling amount of wrestling, little bits of sambo. So, you know, that's sort of the takedown end of things. Um, I've gone into heavy phases of the Filipino martial arts, the Kali, the Arnes, mostly under Daniel Santo, a little bit in the wow, Tercio awesome. system uh, under, uh, well, indirectly, under Leo Gahe, uh, a fair number of Kung Fu systems. I mean, for what it's worth, if somebody really wants to know, it was mostly Hungar, Northern Shaolin, Southern Crane. Uh, those would be the main ones, a little bit of Tai Chi, Wing Chun, um, Capoeira. I was heavily into Capoeira when I was younger. That's, that's cool. Um, it's fantastic gymnastics, really. It's, it's, I mean, how combative is it? Sure, you can use the occasional capoeira technique. Some really cool highlights of capoeira guys knocking the guy out with a, with a big hands on the ground wheel kick. But mostly, I would think of that as a training method, right? You can do gymnastica natural, you can do gymnastics, or you can do capoeira. You're going to get similar things out of all of them, like a spatial awareness, a body control, you know, dynamic flexibility or mobility. Um, in terms of commonalities, man, it's a... Uh... Well, I mean, so you put out content for, like, I've seen you put out a variety of content, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have a blog about yeah. a hernia repair. You're going to have these yeah. leg lock videos. But, sure. like, you know, like, maybe uh, when I say methods, like, are there, are there things, like, when you're, like, okay, this, this way I explain this to jiu-jitsu people that's also going to work over here for boxing like i saw you explain like a boxing for grapplers sort of concept right but like some crossovers like that i feel like that was a really good video you know i was like okay this is needed for somebody that's never going to do boxing you know what i'm saying for the jiu-jitsu guy that's not necessarily interested There, there are some common concepts i mean the concept of distance is really critical in both arts right i'm not going to throw the same punch when I'm one foot away from you, as I am when I'm three feet away from you. I'm not going to do the same attack when I've got you in a spider guard with feet on the biceps pushing you away versus a closed guard, or rather, if it's the same attack, I'm going to get to it a different way, right? So basically, it's a different technique. So distance is super important in both. Um, I'd say the footwork, you know, footwork and mobility for the standing arts is a little bit different from the footwork and mobility in the ground game, but still like you need the ability to move. There's certain ways to move your feet and there's certain ways to move on the ground over an opponent, right? Like whether it's knee mount going from side to side, that's a drill that most people know. That's kind of like, you know, the jab cross 
you know, in a circle to your left and then right cross, right? That, that, you need to be able to move on the ground. You're not just here, I am a turtle, you know, with my uh, legs in the air. It's not the best analogy. Um, the, uh, some commonalities, I, I've worked a lot with Rob Bernacki and his big thing is the, the, the trifecta of jujitsu is base, posture, and structure. So base is your ability to basically push on the ground or on your opponent to generate force, right? If you're jumping in the air like a ballerina and trying to punch the guy, it might work, but you're unlikely to really land a punch because you're not in base. If I try and do a butterfly sweep uh, where my other foot isn't on the ground, where I'm not pushing off the ground to lift you with my instep, it's again not going to work. I don't have the base. I don't have anything to push off of. Uh, posture is, is your spine, your neck and your, your spine in alignment. This applies to both things, right? If I'm trying to box with you and I'm all twisted up and my head's like this, you know, your shoulder touching the, uh, you're touching the shoulder. I'm not in a powerful position to lift. I'm not in a powerful position. You don't do kettlebell swings that way. Uh, you don't do clean and jerk that way. You don't even bench press that way. So what makes you think you can throw a powerful punch that way? What makes you think you can do a powerful armbar escape that way? And then there's structure, right? Your efficient use of your limbs. Um, and that, that's a little bit more waffly because, you know, some people can make inefficient structures work, right? Some boxers can have their hands down by their waist and still do pretty good. I mean, look at what Anderson Silva managed to do by having amazing attributes. But generally, most people boxing should have their hands up, right? Like most people. There's some people who can break any rule, right? There's somebody who can break any rule, but let's just start at the basics. Have your hands up, <laughs> chin down. Not so much that your spine is curved, but you know, chin down so your forehead is there. And you, so there, there are some commonalities, right? I mean, efficient structure, if I've got you in my clothes guard, but my hands are out by my side, like I'm doing a break fall, that's not efficient structure. If I'm trying to pass your clothes guard, but my hands are on the mat, that's not efficient structure. You're going to omoplata me, you're going to triangle me, you're going to reverse arm lock me, you're going to kimura me. I'm going to end up, unless I'm doing some kind of high level baiting, you know, my hands on the ground and your clothes guard is not good structure. There, there's some similarities. Um, I mean, I, I really like working with people one-on-one -on -one and what one person needs is not another. What, like when I'm trying to learn a technique, I'll often like I'll, I'll watch and that's useful and I'll listen and that's useful, but really most often I want to feel it. Can you do that to me? Oh, now I understand. Right. That's, that's what I need to learn. Now, how do you convey that over video? It's, it's hard. This kind of feels like somebody's pushing your arm over your face and like there's a, like a bulldozer coming here and you, you, you can't move back. Right? And sometimes you can convey it in words, but it, everybody learns a little bit differently. But trying, just trying to hit it from as many different angles as you can. Say it, show it, explain it, explain the larger context, try and get people to feel it somehow. Here's a, here's kind of an odd question. So just as much, as much content as you put out across all of these disciplines and, and covered a wide variety of martial arts topics and from videos to blogs to podcasts, do you have any haters? 
I've never met anybody that didn't like you, but, uh, you, you know, Re- but I mean, recently, recently I, I've, I've been doing my best to change that. Right. I mean, I was one of the first people to, uh, come out and talk about COVID and say, no, it's, it's probably legit and we should probably not train and jujitsu is probably the best way to spread this other than group sex. Uh, that certainly got some, got some, uh, negative feedback, shall we say. And then it instantly got so politicized that if you share, you know, like science and research on mask use or hydroxychloroquine or, uh, you know, uh, the, the fatality rates in Hong Kong, it's inevitably a political issue. So yeah, I've, in the last three months, I've received more hate than I've received in the past 20 years of being online. Uh, in some sense, I'm okay with that. It's not something I enjoy at all. I, I don't actually, I'm not a troll. I don't enjoy going out looking for a controversy. But I feel that with my background in biology, I've got a master's of biology. The fact that I'm a first responder uh, and a hazmat specialist and a jiu-jitsu guy, I almost feel like I have a moral obligation to speak out. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist, but I'm also not afraid to go and look at the actual science that's getting published in the preprints. So I feel like I have a bit of a, a moral obligation to, to speak out on this and knowing full well that it's not, I mean, there's a lot of people I've really pissed off. I've received a couple of death threats. Um, yeah, apparently saying like that there's no good study uh, showing the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. This was a couple of months ago, like no randomized double blind clinically clinical trial uh, is enough to get um, to get death threats. So, um, oh my gosh, that's insane, man. I I think it's insane. I mean, of I mean, I understand why people are getting so frustrated by the science, but man, we're five months into this. We're five, like we're still learning new things about tuberculosis. That's been around for two and a half thousand years. And it still kills a lot of people. It still kills a lot mistaken. of people, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, we're five months into this. Of course, there's going to be messy data. There's going to be conflicting data. There's going to be people changing their tune and saying this. But, um, yeah, they, uh, so let's, before then, ha- any haters? Eh, a couple minor incidents, but nothing, nothing too major. So I, I, I've made up for it in the last three months. And I can, you know, I'll tell you where I can empathize with that in my vicinity, right? Is uh, so we're here in the American South. And after Reconstruction ended, when in the South they started uh, segregation, they started legislating what we call Jim Crow laws, mm-hmm. basically creating a separate society for former slaves. Well, when they did that, they rewrote all the textbooks in these former Confederate states, the, these two particular groups, the United Daughters Confederacy. So I've been uh, kind of providing some commentary, just historically speaking, like, hey, you guys ever heard of what they called in history, the lost cause myth? Because I see people propagating uh, it all the time, like they watched Gone with the Wind and accepted it as the the truth you you know uh, but there this lost cause myth comes from this time that was propagated by these like in arkansas we had six former confederate officers who were governor from 1874 when reconstruction ended that next election cycle 
moving forward. And then I've never seen civil war buffs as detailed as in Arkansas. Like it's, it's a stamp. You go to a barbecue joint and the guy's like on April 17th, general, this and that came down that trail over there. 40 feet that way. He got in an engagement, lost two of his men. Here are the names of those men. Then he went back up the, like, Oh my God. Like we had 750 is- engagements in Arkansas. Actually. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I can see why you'd get pushback on that because that unfortunately is politicized. And I've, I, history is more easily politicizable, I guess, than science. Not, not to say science is immune, but uh, I was actually just reading some of the, uh, what was it? The, there was a time in Louisiana and Alabama where to vote, you had to pass, uh, a, you had to either produce a certificate to grade five or you had to pass like a 30 question uh, questionnaire to master your, your math, to demonstrate your mastery of English. And so I, I tried to take this test and it's 30 questions. You had 10 minutes and my God, I think that one person in a hundred could pass it. Like it's certain, you know, in the following sentence, what is, you know, circle the letter that is three places before the last letter in the alphabet in this sentence. I'm like, what does that even mean? but I can't stop to think about it because now there's 29 questions more. And apparently if you got one of those 30 questions wrong, you failed. So who had grade five education? Basically the whites. There weren't very many blacks who had grade five education and they had to pass this written test. And honestly, it's more like a Mensa test or an SAT question. And I guarantee you SAT, like if if you put that out there as an SAT uh, thing, you'd get a not very many people get 30 out of 30 at all. We, poll taxes were also common, right? Uh, to where you just, like, if you were into the sad part is, is when this happened, this also did, disenfranchised poor whites as well, right? So, like, if you were a poor white that didn't have fifth grade education, you were, you know, you may also be a sharecropper and forced it. So, that it, it really disenfranchised a lot of poor people, but primarily most blacks didn't even leave their, uh, educa- uh, were they, their plantation after civil war because they were an agricultural worker. Where were they going to go? What were they going to do? So they stayed and negotiated sharecropping contracts and then get disenfranchised. But there was a period from 65 to 74. I just finished a book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow by uh, C. Van Woodward. It's great. And he goes into this it's short listen or read, but um, it outlines this whole history. It's like the definitive sort of book on it. It was a great. I mean, as a Canadian, I didn't really know about, I'd heard the term Jim Crow, but I hadn't really looked, you know, looked into it for until about five years ago. I'm like, oh my God, it, uh, you know, a whole lot of people died in the civil war for this. And it's almost like after the civil war, just like before the civil war, from the point of view of the average black slave, or am I wrong about that? No, yeah, that's um, yeah, and then too, you have a whole lot of whole lot of people still that want to say, even though it's mentioned in all eleven secession letters, and even though the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, said our Confederacy is built on the cornerstone of uh, slavery, it is our foundation, right? People still want to argue that slavery had nothing to do with it, right here in the American South, and it, it being a historian here 
it drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there was more to it than just slavery. Uh, they, but... there, there was. It, yeah. The states' rights is always the one they like to bring up. And I'm like, yes, states' rights to choose to be a slave state or to become a slave state. Yeah. And it goes deeper than that. But it's like, so, you know, you don't want to oversimplify it or undersimplify it. There's a very long answer. But that's like, I, you know, I do like to point out that it's mentioned in all the secession letters. You know, mm-hmm. is a, is a, is, I mean, in some of them. It, it gets real righteous with their cause, with how much they go into it. You know, Arkansas, we sent more troops to fight in the Union than any other southern state aside from Tennessee. Really? I would have thought Virginia would have had uh, – wasn't Virginia the biggest state? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, like, I don't know. I would have to look up troop numbers on that. Yeah, but, um, it, you know, Tennessee, I guess it makes sense because you had um, – that was vice president. That's his home mm. state. So – but yeah, and uh, you know, to next to us, Missouri, only slave state that didn't secede from the Union. So Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville, where I was telling you they have to wear the mask, it's right up there on the border of Missouri. The war was crazy in that part mm. of the state. Yeah. I I don't know. I know it's sad to say I know much more about um <laughs> wars five hundred years ago in Europe than I do about the Civil War. I mean, I've listened to a couple of in-depth uh you know, lecture series about it and that's it okay. yeah i've recently been uh you know speaking to canada uh which uh you know primarily takes place more around like uh new york but uh we're 1812 that's something that i've mm-hmm. gone down the rabbit hole on recently is it true is it true that when the brits and the canadians marched down to the white house to burn it down that they gave the americans notice saying hey we're going to burn this down you might want to remove like your important documents from here is I've heard that that's, that would be so Canadian. Like, look, we, we, we have to do this. I want that to be true. I don't know if that is true. I'm going to look into that. I knew that they knew because um, they knew the whole day, like a uh, president was out in the field. His wife was able to get like a picture of Washington and some curtains and some silver, hmm. but it, they didn't know they'd evacuate everything. And I know that uh, I just read this recently, her um, like attache that was supposed to be watching her and everything abandoned her. Mm-hmm. Right. First lady. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, they, they knew they were coming and evacuated the whole city. I mean, and I felt like in an orderly fashion, like had several hours to do it. So they either had notice from spies or they sent them, you know, hey, because man, DC, another thing people don't realize, DC was actually still pretty small at that time. Mm. Still a lot of uh, underdeveloped and uh, in, in under construction buildings. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I, one of my maxims is beware of what you want to be true, right? I mean, it's just so easy to fool yourself. There's no shortage of cognitive biases. There's so many ways that you can, you know, fool yourself. So when I heard that story from somebody who prides himself as a historian, but isn't actually a historian, it's like, that would be fantastic. It was like, excuse I'm going to look into that. We need to burn your Capitol building now, but why don't you take uh, three hours to get the most valuable stuff out first? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, too, what's funny is at that time, it was, it was a, uh, the White House is actually a yellow color. Oh. It wasn't called the White House until 45 uh, when, uh, or, well, while FDR was in office, that's when it was called the presidential mansion. Oh, back I had then. no idea. 
That yeah, was I, I learned that the Constitution it, that it's the White House and that there are two parties in the states. I remember being when in college when I learned this, I was I was like, what else have I been lied to about? It's called the White House. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, so I got one more thing to talk to you about. Sure. Me. Um, jiu-jitsu related as well maybe you have an opinion on this like i i was listening briefly i haven't finished it to jocko wilnick uh on joe rogan i've listened to his book extreme ownership it's it's pretty good but he was saying that he feels like that law enforcement should spend one-fifth of the time working on maybe the type of stuff that we work on like jujitsu, some sort of uh, defensive tactic martial arts training because we're seeing that a lot of departments, maybe not even mandatory requirement for the department. Some departments mandate 40 hours per year, and it kind of varies by department. And I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, and I just like, I'm mean, trying to talk with people about it. Anybody I know that trains jiu-jitsu, I know there's this movements around getting jiu-jitsu in Georgia, one of our southern states. Um, jiu-jitsu is going to become mandatory for that state, for law enforcement. So do you have any thoughts on all that i want to be careful going outside what i know right i mean i i covid and stuff there's certain aspects of that that i've actually done a lot of the research i mean as soon as we start talking about this we're really brushing up against black lives matters i mean that and that whole the the massive you know anti-police brutality protests that are going on right now so you know i this is a something i don't feel really I'm going to have an opinion. I just want to preface it by saying I have not really taken a look at the data. There's just not time in the day for me to be an expert on very many things at all. Uh, so I, I um, so that being said, based off of working with some cops, uh, you know, it's training partners working a little bit on some police tactics uh, training. Uh, I'm, I'm not, jujitsu training would keep cops safer. This is true. And it, it can be a dangerous job. So I think there's definitely 100% validity to teaching jujitsu to cops. And most police departments do a pretty piss poor job of defensive tactics. They really do. Usually what happens is somebody comes in there and goes, well, last year you had defensive tactics training and four cops got injured and this, this many hours of overtime in my amazing new system of, I don't know, nerve, remote nerve manipulation or defensive tactics with some long acronym, DQTSBXYZ STARS training. It's so effective that we can train that uh, with almost no contact and nobody's gonna get injured and your officer is gonna be 10 times more effective and the chief goes, well, I don't know, that sounds good to me. Um, there's a whole lot of bullshit that's being peddled there uh, to cops. Now, does it make them less likely to end up in a situation where, I mean, functionally, this is, this is a, about protecting cops, but then it's also about protecting civilians, right? Whether it's an arrest gone bad, whether they're arresting the wrong person, whether they're arresting the right person, whether the person fights back. <sighs> jiu-jitsu in the wrong hands could certainly make the person more of a, if you put jiu-jitsu into the hands of a sadist, it can make them more of a sadist. Oh, great. I know exactly how to put knee on the face now. This might look like an innocent knee on the belly, but I know That's exactly. That's a great point, man. I, 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 um, I hadn't really thought about that. 
That is a great. I, I would like to think that most people wouldn't be like that, but we got to acknowledge that that could be a possibility. Um, the there was an amazing. I mean, I have not looked into this, but I've kind of tangentially read about it. Uh, somebody was posting the difference in hours that and requirements that cops need in like Finland, Norway, Germany, and the United States. Right? And like Germany, you need a two-year degree. Finland, you need a three-year degree. Uh, you know, United States, you need like, I don't know, almost nothing. Uh, they, it's a two years training in Germany. It's three years training in Iceland. It's, it's, in the United States, it's like, I don't know, uh, 24 weeks or whatever the number is. It's six, and then, they, of course, it was like, as a kicker, it was like number of people killed in the last 10 years, number of people killed in the last 10 years, number of people killed in the last 10 years. And it was like four, eight, seven. And in the United States, it's about 1,000 people a year get shot by the cops. So now I recognize, of course, the United States is different because it's such a heavily armed society. You guys have got a shit ton of guns. I've been in Arkansas. It's pretty unusual. We love 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 guns down here. So that would, of course, change the whole policing dynamic. If you gave me a choice of being a cop in, I don't know, uh, Finland versus the United States, all things being, I'd take Finland, right? Like, let's just deal with, you know, people who are like, throwing gefilte fish or you know, like pickled herring at each other when they get too drunk, as opposed to, you know, like, well, I've only got four, four guns in this car, but in that other car, I've got three more. And if I go into that house, I got a whole arsenal, right? It, it's, so I, I think it's a little bit simplistic to talk about the amount of training versus the amount of people get killed each year during the arrest process. And that, that is, that's an under, yeah, you, I get what you're saying. It's that undersimplifies the issue. It's because it's super complex. Biggest thing I've advocated for is the consistency. Like you hit it on the head when you're talking about, well, we sent Dave back to get the, the Gracie certification this year. We paid several thousand dollars for it and he's here to teach us because he's an instructor now. Yep. You know, I've seen that exact thing. Fortunately, in the case that I can think of, the guy who went and got the Gracie certification by the department was already a very, very highly skilled Carlson Gracie black belt. So he was just going to get like the, uh, uh, I don't know, the stamp of approval to the department could say, no, he was not only a black belt, he's a defensive tactics trained guy. Okay, so it made sense in that one case. But if Dave is just, I mean, what percentage of people fail the Gracie defensive tactics course? I mean, if it's less than... 50%, it's pretty much everyone's passing and it should, it should be a really hard course to pass. Um, I, I don't know what those passing stats are. Well, but there's yeah. a whole lot of Daves out there who are fat and out of shape and maybe, maybe, you know, just are the senior guy who's going to take this course. Yeah. And I mean, those people, I think they could obviously benefit from lifestyle and wellness aspects of training I broke it down to I was talking with a guy uh, at the gym who uh, competes and I broke it to him this way. I was like, Hey, so these guys train 40 hours, one week a year in their defensive tactics, like this one particular group. I was like, so imagine that you did seminars for five days, you know, and you did MMA seminars and then you're going to fight for the rest of the year. And you're going to get that experience. Like a cop gets on the job experience arresting people, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, and that's your training. That's your camps. That's everything. You get these five days of seminars for eight hours, and then you go fight. 
Yeah. And I was it like, wouldn't be, the, wouldn't be yeah. the most efficient way to do it, would it? But. Yeah, yeah, but that's like, but then I, but like the analogy, I was like, or you could train two days a week and or more, you know, because you want to, you know, you want to do well, you want to feel comfortable, you want to feel confident. It's just like uh, the older I've gotten, like I, you know, I ride my bike and I exercise, and I do all these things for my wellness, and and so I can keep training. And I think that that's um, that's a lot of we need a maybe afford these time them on the job like Jocko was saying like one fifth of the, your time while you're working like Google gets to take a nap at work like the cop can't go do an hour of a martial art on the on the clock and it be kind of you know an encouraged thing yeah. or something you know like what that. I for sure it would make the cops safer and that's a good thing would it make the public safer I'd like to think so but I would want to see data. Like maybe there's data. Like if maybe I'd, it'd be a pretty easy graph, like take the entire nation, take the number of hours of defensive tactics training. There's gotta be some that do 10 hours a year. There's gotta be some that do 40 hours a year. There's gotta be do some that do hundred hours a year and plot that against the, uh, you know, the likelihood of shooting somebody per thousand policing hours or, or whatever, you know, you do an interesting statistical analysis to see I would love to see that data. I would like to think that it, that, that it would help because it would make people less. Here's an example. I once went to an Eric Paulson seminar down in Seattle and there were a whole bunch of martial artists, but there was also a group of 10 recruits from the police academy who were there. I don't know how they ended up there, but they all came. And so I got over the course of the two days, I got to basically lay hands on each of them, right? We're doing standing clinching drills, not full force, but just push, pull, and honestly, eight out of the 10 of them were like they had never, forget martial arts, it felt like they'd never lifted a weight or played ultimate frisbee or done Tai Chi. Just no sense of base posture and structure, essentially, right? Like no athleticism. There were two guys, one guy and one girl. The guy had done some weight training, so obviously he had like some basic uh, balance and the girl was just super feisty. But eight out of 10 felt like they had never, like. Like they were computer programmers who'd been, uh, I don't know, locked behind a desk for 10 years. And now they're like, oh, like I need to all fight. Ah! And just no physical confidence and no reason for physical confidence. So that's my little snapshot, random sample, semi-random sample of, of that. And I know that if I had that little confidence in my body and what I could do, or even just like staying upright. If somebody pushes me, I would, you know, come out with my, my taser and my gun in both hands. And, you know, like I, I'd just be far more likely to escalate that really quickly because I know I have no fallback plan at all if they come within a certain distance and they'd be right. They did have no fallback plan at all. I've also, um, uh, have seen some and trained with some Arkansas police recruits uh, when I was going to the Arkansas Fire Academy. And like generally the level of conditioning. Uh, so I was a firefighter going through the firefighting program. There are a bunch of cops going through the cop program. They heard that I did, that I did UFC, right? Oh, we get that. Oh yeah. Do you, so you, I, you train I, UFC? I, I train UFC. So they wanted to take a run at me. So I was a purple belt at the time, I think. 
Uh, oh, okay, cool. Like we'll, we'll train. Like I'm not going to be a dick about it. I'll just you know roll them, tap them out. And I think there were ten guys on the first go through. One, two, you know, tap one, tap two, tap three, tap four, tap. Everyone else is standing around chirping, but there's like eight to ten guys who are brave enough to actually put their money where their mouth is. Go through all of them. Second time through, there's only four. Like four of them have already dropped out. You know, third time through, there's like two. And just the level of conditioning, like just the, like you better not ever get in a fist fight because you're going to be gassed in about 15 seconds. Like, so maybe it's not even, maybe it's not even martial arts training. Maybe it's like basic physical conditioning standards as, as a start. And I, here I've just lost my entire Arkansas law enforcement officer population, but man, it was just a real illustration of how, piss poor and there was one guy who was a kickboxer who had great endurance so we ended up sparring but out of a random you know semi-random sample of eight or ten guys who were brave enough to actually get on the mat with somebody they didn't know um like one guy had what i would call decent endurance that that's that's just a recipe for disaster really because they've got to shoot people there's nothing else they can do your body will fail you in those times. I mean, even I, like I, we were at morning class the other day and someone was squeezing too hard. They were new and they held their breath and they were tired and they overexerted after that. And then after the round, I could tell they were panicked. Like they had mm. panic going on. They walked over and they were kind of, and then they plugged one of the fans in and I was like, Ooh, Okay, how are you doing there, guy? And then I walked over the door. They stick their head out the door, just gas looking for air. air. Yeah, but I mean, that's I mean, that was across a three-minute round, and that guy trains, and he tra he's there every morning. Um, and he's he's retired military. Claustrophobia issues, maybe. Uh, this guy, I I think he just partially that because he got toppled over and then he spent some time on bottom but man he'll just get onto something and he's he's smaller mm. you know and he's like close to 50 but he'll squeeze ah! you know and it can man, it just gas him out holding his breath i think is probably mm. what happened but yeah. um you know those are it's things like, that are common we we can kind of laugh at that and then i think back to my first couple competitions when i would been already spent hundreds of hours on the mat and think of how quickly I got tired, like exhausted, barely able to function tired. And it, it, I was must have either holding my breath or just shallow breathing like <laughs> at a time when you really should be getting every, using every orifice on your, on your head to get air into your lungs, you know, breathe in through your ears. Yeah, uh, that's a, exactly. And I, I experienced the same thing many times. I tell people all the time I was to brown belt before I was like walking off of a match being like, hey, I still got my forearms. This is great. <laughs> because I, I learned, I just had to learn how to grip. Oh, yeah. Right. Keep grip. Yeah, but that that's the sort of stuff. And, you know, that's a, that is an X factor too on law enforcement that you know, like somebody's brought this as like uh, them, the uncertainty of does this person have a weapon and for sure the fighting, like, you know, a jujitsu competition. Yeah. We get that way in the competition, but quote unquote, aren't technically fighting for our life. Yes. 
you know, so I, that's another layer of it that I, I can't really speak to because everything I've done has been a sport, MMA, kickboxing, jujitsu, all those competitions where there's a ref. Yeah. The fact that there's a gun and if you lose the engagement, the guy could get your gun and kill you changes everything. Like it, it really does. And it gives me some compassion for what, I mean, there's tons and tons of footage online of cops doing terrible shitty things during these protests. I get like, and that some of it's inexcusable. On the other hand, like the consequences of being a cop and getting cut off from all your buddies are different than being a protester and getting cut off from all your buddies. If you're a protester, you get cut off by all your buddies, by a cop, by the cops, you might get knocked up a bit, but you're probably going in a paddy wagon. Probably. Let, let, let's hope, unless it's one of these super extreme cases of actual brutality. But if you're a cop and you get cut off from your buddies, I mean, you've got a gun, right? Like if, if I didn't come to the protest with a gun, I can take yours. And so it's not an asymmetric, it's not a symmetrical situation. And in a recent podcast, uh, Sam Harris on the Making Sense podcast went into depth about this and probably came up with a position that pissed off everybody, right? Like <laughs> probably pissed off the, you know, white, the blue lives matters, the white lives matters and the black lives matters people, you know, green lives matter too. Like, but it's not a symmetrical situation. And, uh, I, I, but really just cause something like grappling with weapons, which, which I've done is terrifying enough, right? When you start thinking this through, but is your solution to that not doing any grappling with or without weapons at all? I think that would be even dumber. Like the scarier the thing is, almost the more you should train for it. And we do this in jujitsu all the time. Hey, let's start with me on an arm bar. With my hands closed, that's, that's pretty scary. Like that's you know, one step away from, from tapping, but let's drill this. And you know, maybe you're not going full force on me. Maybe you're not actually gonna crank my arm or let's start with you, know, you with me and a digging for the heel hook. Right? You got the leg entanglement, you're digging for the heel hook. That's a, if that's in a match, I'm at, you know, DEFCON 5. Does DEFCON go up to 5? I'm at, like, you know. I think it does in 10th Planet. Okay. <laughs> I think that's, like, their, I think that, or maybe that's DEFCON 4, but when they, like, rear naked choke on the twister in 10th yeah. Planet, I think they call oh, that, like, DEFCON level 4. I can't keep track of the uh, DEFCON, either the uh, 10th Planet alternate jiu-jitsu technology or alternate jiu-jitsu terminology or their alternate uh, universe cosmology. Both, both are very confusing to me. Yeah, I was telling Cora, because uh, she, I shared a video today in uh, Jiu-Jitsu, this group online, and uh, there was a white belt that commented on it. It was like, well, Master Sauer, his white belt that I train with does it this way. And I was like, cool, dude, you know. But she's like, how do you deal with that? I was like, hey, imagine Eddie Bravo. He believes the earth's flat. Like, imagine the shit that he gets. You know what I'm saying? Like, you think it bothers him? Like, he's not. That's why I asked you. Because, man, I had um, the guy Ari from Submissions 101 on a while back. And, like, he's got a lot of hate online. And I think that anybody that puts himself out there like you're doing or like anybody, anybody that I've come into contact with or like I'm doing with these videos, you're going to get off-color comments you're gonna be you're gonna have expertise to comment on a subject and you're gonna be doing a social good by doing that and people are gonna send you death threats and stuff like but 
you know, I, I think that um, it's it's interesting how much uh, hate there is in, in the online space. And it's, it's what was like it Churchill said about uh, if you have enemies, that's good. It means you've stood up. It means you've stood for something. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I've heard that quote. I'm not sure if it's Churchill. I think it is, though. Well, then it must be Mark Twain. <laughs> the universal rule of ascribing any quote that you can't give the don't you don't know the source of ascribing it to mark twain is there one yeah. other person that you're supposed to give it to you're supposed to give Kev, it to mark twain kevin bacon perhaps uh. <laughs> you know i've said that they seven degrees everything's connected to kevin bacon and seven people or less or something like that i want to say it's churchill i want to say yeah. it's churchill yeah well, man, I really, um, let's, go, let's go ahead and wrap it up. I really appreciate you working with me on, like, uh, I felt like we pulled this together. You're willing to work out a time uh, this week, and I've I followed you for years, and it's been an honor and a privilege. Well, it's very to, nice to, to meet you virtually. Yes. And it's too bad that we missed each other uh, physically all those years ago. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I want to say, what year was that when you came through? In 99. I wasn't even training jujitsu to low six. Oh. So, yeah. I think the year you got your black belt, right? Back in the spring of 99. Yeah, I got my black belt in 06. Yeah, back in my day. I got my black belt uh, uh, New Year's Eve day of 2006. I was very, very glad that I did because one of my best friends and training partners had got his black belt like two days before when he came to class. And if I had gotten it the next day, it would have been 2007. He would have never let me hear the end of it of how he got his black belt a year before I did. So I was very highly relieved to receive it uh, New Year's Day uh, two, uh, 2006. Excellent. Yeah. Well, man, jiu-jitsu, it's been great for me all these years. And uh, like when I was coming up, man, I, I was definitely following you. And I really appreciate all the content well, you put out. So. Well, I'm so glad you found it useful. Yeah. Well, have a great day, man. Thanks. Appreciate you. Take care and good luck. Thank you.